Hallelujah. You have risen indeed, our Lord Jesus Christ. You declared to your disciples after you had risen and right before you ascended that we would be your witnesses to Judea, to Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth to reveal the hidden kingdom of God to eyes yet blind to see its truth. Who would have known at that time except the Godhead that that echo would go forward to millennia and be answered and fulfilled even today as we read and hear your holy word proclaiming Christ is risen from the dead, death is defeated in his work on Calvary, and we, your people, continue to be gathered from the far corners of the earth and all of history to the praise of your great name as we lift up our collective hallelujahs for saving us from our sin, ransoming us unto newness of life, giving us hearts now that strive after godliness because the Spirit is working in us to will and to do of your good pleasure. Now as we turn our attention to your holy, infallible, and errant word, awaken our soul's affections to its truths, we pray. Open the ears of our spiritual understanding, the eyes of our spiritual sight, so that we might see Christ, and we might follow in His footsteps this day. We thank you, Lord, that by your authority you have foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. And we rest in the comfort of the God who's decreed the end from the beginning. And we rejoice in our salvation today, which was purchased on Calvary and is ours by the applying power of the Holy Spirit. We thank you for these things and pray that you would draw our attention now to your word, that it would be written on our hearts. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord for this opportunity and privilege to open the Scriptures together. Please do so with me by turning in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24 this morning. Matthew 24 verses 1 through 14 will be the primary text of our study today under the title, Birth Pains. The title for this message comes from chapter 24 of Matthew's Gospel, verse 8, where Christ Himself says, All these are but the beginning of birth pains. As he announces the terms of judgment now that introduce a phase of his kingdom that is sneaking up upon the naysayers like a tidal wave of wrath that will overtake them in their sin suddenly in a moment and will render them helpless even to utter their cries of rebellion against the Lord. This is the power of our God unfolding in the judgments as His kingdom is declared from the mouth of its chief ambassador, Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords. So let us fear Him today as we listen to this judgment proclaimed. But let us also revel and take comfort in the fact that the judgment that our sin deserved that would otherwise be proclaimed on us, as it has been in our text prior, chapter 23, to the scribes and Pharisees. The judgment that our sin deserved was rolled on to Christ, and so we escape the wrath of God in Christ, our Savior and Lord. Stand with me, if you would, if you're able this morning, and let us read these verses together. Again, Matthew 24, verses 1 through 14. The Holy Word of God declares to us today, Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Verse 3. 
He sat on the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming? And of the close of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed. For this must take place, but the end is not yet. Verse 7. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of the birth pains. Verse 9. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my namesake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed through the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. This is the holy word of Christ. You may be seated. Let me introduce this morning's message with a brief note of broader context, sweeping through the book of Matthew by just noting for your attention, drawing, jogging your memory to five reference points. These would be the great discourses in Matthew. The first is the Sermon on the Mount, the famous declaration of kingdom ethics <coughs> that encompasses chapters 5 through 7. Commentators have noted that this pattern or structure of Matthew's body of literary work is framed around these five interjections that have at the beginning and the end a unique literary device. At the beginning, the disciples approach him, and then the rest of the body of the discourse is his instruction, his didactic teaching to his followers. And at the close of each one of these bodies, uh, sermons, bodies of speech, we have the words... uh, that, that we've identified all the way back in chapter 7. Thus concludes the words of Jesus, or after this, if I can find this one, uh, and the uh, rain fell and the floods came. This is Matthew seven twenty seven, And the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And then as the uh, remarks are concluding, and then Jesus, <coughs> excuse me, verse 28, and when... Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. At the close of each one of these discourses, we have similar language when Jesus finished these sayings. So the first one I've just read to you the close is the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5 through 7. Disciples approach him with a question. He takes the occasion to teach them the constitution, if you will, of the kingdom of God. We've identified this as the theme of the first great discourse. The second discourse appears in Matthew chapter 10. We've identified the theme in this case as kingdom commission. Commissioning the emissaries or ambassadors of the kingdom of God to go forth and to be its heralds, to proclaim its truths. The third great discourse in Matthew's gospel appears in chapter 13. And here we've identified perhaps a theme, kingdom comparisons. 
There are seven parables in this section that open with the kingdom can be compared to, or the kingdom is like seed planted in a field, or uh, treasure hidden in the same. Number four, the fourth is in chapter 18, and this theme could be church of the kingdom of God. The church. In chapter 18, we find Jesus expounding the, and, and introducing the term in Greek ekklesia for the first time, as I recall, uh, in the gospel. And he opens by saying that at this time, uh, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling a child to him, he put him before him, them in the midst and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And so entrance to the kingdom of heaven and the nature of those who now assemble, who are citizens thereof, is expounded in the fourth great discourse. This leads us to our passage today, which is the fifth of these great discourses that appears in chapter 24. The fifth could could perhaps be themed kingdom consequences. If we take the kingdom of of God as the theme of the entire book of Matthew, we see that Jesus has laid out its terms and conditions, its law and its constitution. Secondly, its commission. Thirdly, comparisons help us to understand what it is like to grasp the concepts thereof. Fourthly, the kingdom of God as it relates to church, who are its loyal citizens. And fifthly, its consequences. What authority does it have? What power does its rule, does its hierarchy, does its emissary, does its king have to enforce its terms? And that's our passage today, really explaining what happens when you oppose obstinately the message of the king. When you turn against his commandments, what can you expect? Kingdom consequences. As Jesus finished um, all these different sayings, we have again the close or the brackets of the end of each one of these discourses. But also I would have you note by way of overall context that the very first of the discourses and the very close of the discourses have a similar situation. That is, the Sermon on the Mount and the Mount Olive Discourse both have Jesus Christ seated on a mountain proclaiming authoritatively His Word. Pay attention to those details, saints, as you go through the Scriptures. Mountains are significant, that high place denoting authority, or the place of prominence, whereby everyone else looks up to what's going on in that featured location. This is part of the geographical metaphor that we see in Scripture when high places are in view. Also, seated. Seated is significant, is it not? We see this theme in the book of Ephesians. We see, first of all, that Christ is seated, and then we see our command to walk, to follow Him, and then our command to stand and fight for Him. We see the theme of seated, or sitting, again, uh, reiterating prophecies of old in Psalm 110 and Matthew twenty-two forty-four, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And so to demonstrate his authority over all his enemies and to proclaim prophetically that he will subdue them in his perfect time, in the fullness of time, Christ seats on the mount of, is seated on the mount as he delivers his sermon in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. And again, he's seated on a mount in our text today as he delivers the Mount Olive Discourse. Notice these details and the context as we get to the theme of our message today, birth pains, or what we can expect 
under the judgments of the kingdom, or how the authority of Christ will manifest itself in due time, and as it has historically and will in the future and does in our day. Let's organize our thoughts under this heading this morning. Kingdom judgments introduced by the following. First of all, setting and occasion. King Jesus introduce, introduces this judgment pericope or sermon by setting forth or by uh, drawing our attention in the narrative to the setting and the occasion. Secondly, there's a prior warning. Before declaring the judgments, uh, Christ warns His disciples what to expect. Thirdly, kingdom gains. In spite of this great cataclysmic event that is going to befall these people at this time, there remains God-glorifying, proactive, kingdom-growing purposes at the same time that will unfold. So these are the kingdom judgments in context, or the introduction in context. You'll notice in verses 1 through 14 that it really is a summary. Christ answers the question of the disciples in summary form, and then verses 15 to the close of the sermon, He expands. Even on into chapter 25, we see Him building on these themes of what to expect when the kingdom of God invades history for those who are not in good standing with it. First of all, let us consider under setting and occasion consequential woes. I'll remind you in chapter 23 that in a typical form of perfection and even judgment language, Christ has delivered seven times condemnation on the scribes and the Pharisees. Matthew 23, 13, for instance, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. Secondly, woe to you, verse 16, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe again to you, he proclaims in verse 16. A fourth time in verse 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Again, it's reiterated in verse 25. A sixth time in verse 27. Finally, in verse 29, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would have not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Verse 31, Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. He goes on, verse 32, just a reminder of the context. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. What is this? The wrath and judgment that prior generations deserved on account of slaying the righteous. The testimony of God was met with animosity and from the blood of righteous Abel to Zechariah son of Berechiah. Now the judgment has been heaping up, coming to a head, and is coming upon the heads of this generation. Fill up the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. We recall that this imagery draws our attention to the conflict placed between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman all the way back to Genesis 3. Something cosmic is going on here. History has been shaped by God's decrees and now those who have taken issue with Him are going to be called to account. They will not stand and remain in their rebellion forever, unaccountable for their actions. Verse 34, Therefore I tell you, 
prophets and wise men, scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of innocent Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation." Turn back with me to a text that we referenced last week, Isaiah chapter 6. I want to build on our final point of last week's message, which was compassion uh, primarily, but under that, this note of desolate house. In Matthew 23, 37, Jesus laments. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets, how often would I have gathered you your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you would not see your house is left to you desolate. That house is a reference no doubt immediately to the temple where Jesus is proclaiming these words of judgment and goes on to proclaim the destruction of the same. Jesus has entered his temple. He has come to the place where he himself as the glory of God Uh, ought to be seated and situated and prominently featured. And he is greeted not with welcoming cries of Hosanna to the son of David by the religious leaders, but instead by animosity, by plots to kill him, and by accusations of sin against the only perfect man who ever lived, God in flesh. So here we see this dramatic scene in conflict. Well, if we juxtapose this, Against the vision of Isaiah in chapter 6, there's a few things to note beyond even what we touched on last week. Isaiah 6 verse 1, And the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated upon a throne high and lifted up. Notice first of all this imagery. Isaiah, Isaiah in this vision, in this theophany if you will, he sees God himself manifest in visible form. Where does he see him? How does he see him? He sees him sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, just as Christ was seated proclaiming the Sermon on the Mount in the Mount Olivet Discourse, both cases on a mountain, high and lifted up. It says, and the train, again Isaiah 6.1, of his robe filled the temple. In prophetic imagery, this well draws our attention to the glory of God, which goes beyond him, yet is inseparable from him, and fills up the environment where he resides. Each and above him stood the seraphim. What are seraphim? Uniquely designed six-winged creatures who exist solely to give him glory forever. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another saying. And here we have thrice holy confessed by these glorious celestial creatures. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of of his glory. Verse 4. The foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, listen to the confession of the prophet, as he sees the glory of the Lord in his temple. Isaiah says, woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Brothers and sisters in Christ, let us note that no less in Matthew 23 had the eyes of the scribes and the Pharisees and the crowds seen the King. 
They had seen the Lord of hosts. And what did they cry? What did the scribes and Pharisees cry? He has a demon. He preaches blasphemy. He deserves to be condemned by the pagan government of Rome. We will not follow him. They stop their ears. They shout their insults. They run away to plot his death. So what do they hear? They hear, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, seven times. Notice, when the gospel comes, revealing to us our sin, and when our eyes behold in the gospel the glory of the Lord, there is only one of two responses that is engendered in the human heart. One is, I'm offended, and to that person is proclaimed sevenfold woes. The other is, woe is me. I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. The revelation of Christ in His temple, in the fullness of His glory, seated where we ought to see Him as authoritatively ruling and reigning over all the universe, over all of history, and the hinge pin of redemptive history itself, that revelation brings the true believer to his knees and he cries out, I am worthy of judgment. Woe is me. A similar response from the disciples who were similarly moved. Do you remember Peter? When he saw the power of Christ manifested to him, he knew now that he was walking with one who was God of the storm, of the elements. And he says, depart from me, for I am a sinner. He declares on himself, woe is me. I stand in light of your perfect holiness, judged and condemned in my sin. Now in this response, what happens? One of the seraphim flew to me. We see the picture in Isaiah 6, 6. Having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. For those who are not a scribe and a Pharisee, when hearing the sharp corrective rebuke and judgments of the gospel, For those who cry out, woe is me, in Christ they have cleansing and atonement for their sins. But for those who cry out, who are you to say such things to me? I am content in my own hypocrisy. Who says to them is declared, woe to you? You witness against yourselves. You are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers. So here we have the context, brothers and sisters, both drawing from the old covenant imagery and the context in the book of Matthew. What is the content of the woes, if you will? What does it look like when judgment falls upon the heads of a people so deserving? What are the consequences of Jesus' proclamation of judgment? Well, we find them in chapters 24 through 25. As we see what it looks like when all the righteous blood of the martyrs that went before from Abel to Zechariah falls on the heads of a generation. And this ought to make us cry out in utter dependence and and a confession of our own depravity. And if we've received Christ in thankfulness that these woes will not fall upon our head, but were instead taken upon Christ. Setting an occasion... We are now going to see in Matthew 24 what it looks like when the woes do not fall on Christ, 
but fall on the heads of people who reject him. Secondly, setting an occasion. This kingdom judgment is introduced by taking note or introduced in a unique way when we take note of the location. Where does this take place? Again, building on what I've already stated, on a mountain where Christ is seated, we have some other reference points to setting. In Matthew 23, 37, for instance, Christ declares, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. See your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So we have the location here and the occasion of Jesus' lament as the city of Jerusalem, which represents apostasy. Those who ought to value and treasure what God has revealed to them, but because they have not, now with a weeping heart, a heavy compassion, yet a weighty a truth of a just God, now judgment will fall upon them. But we see, in addition to this, an even narrower focus in 24.1. Jesus left where? The temple, and was going away. When his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these things, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So notice the location, Jerusalem, and even more specifically, the temple. Turn back with me to Ezekiel chapter 10. My heart leapt with the joy of the genius of Scripture and the fingerprint of divine inspiration when this was drawn to my attention recently. Commentators who dig through the Scriptures looking for the treasures they're contained have pointed out these connections, and they ought to make our hearts sing with joy as we see the power of God revealed in His infallible Word. Ezekiel 10, verse 18, the scene here is a vision. And Ezekiel is seeing prophetically uh, things that are happening and indeed taking place before his very eyes. It says, among the account of what he writes in verse 18, Then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house. What house are we referring to here? The house that is going to be left desolate in the words of Jesus Christ in Matthew 23. The temple indeed. And stood over the cherubim. So the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim. And the cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth before my eyes as they went out with the wheels beside them. And they stood at the entrance of the east gate of the house of the Lord. Notice that location, the east gate. And the glory of the God of Israel was over them. So what has happened? A sort of vehicle, a mode of transport is provided by the cherubim, these winged creatures, the glory of the Lord itself has lifted from the place of its residing, the place of meeting with God's people, and now it's moved to the east gate. And it's, uh, it's on a path away from Jerusalem. Now if we turn over in the same book to chapter 11, verses 22 through 23, we get some more specifics on the direction of the exit of the glory of the Lord from the temple. Verse 22. Then the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them, and the glory of the God of Israel was over them, and the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. 
And the Spirit lifted me up and brought me in the vision by the Spirit of God into Chaldea to the exiles. Then the vision that I had sent went up uh, from me, and I told the exiles all the things the Lord had shown me. What was Ezekiel telling the exiles? He's telling them that God's judgment is falling upon them and will manifest itself in the exit of His glory from its place of residing in the temple. It will leave the city to the east, and it will go forward to the mountain, and it will leave to the mountain on the east side of the city. Where is this location? Commentators draw our attention to the Mount of Olives itself. Again, verse 20, or chapter 24, verse 1 of Matthew. Jesus left the temple and was going away. And when his disciples came out to him, or came out to him, the buildings came to point out to him the buildings of the temple, he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Verse 3. And he sat on the Mount of Olives. The path of Jesus as he exits this temple retraces the steps of the former glory of the Lord in Ezekiel chapters 10 and 11. Christ is the glory of the Lord. And when the glory of the Lord exits, then judgment is rushing in to the vacuum. In Isaiah chapter 6, the angels, the six-winged seraphims, they served to glorify the Lord, and they provided in that occasion glorious context and an environment of praise and worship such that Isaiah confessed his sins, glorified the Lord, was anointed as a prophet, received the word, and was commissioned to go. In stark contrast to this, in Ezekiel chapter 10 and 11, now the angels, the cherubim, serve as a vehicle to remove God's glory from the presence from the presence of the people, and judgment then is to be expected. Brothers and sisters, I don't know if a a few of you may have seen on Wednesday the pictures that were displayed on this screen right here before you of a place of weeping and wailing that yet exists to this day. The western wall of the temple in Jerusalem Jews to this day, ethnic heritage of the children of Israel as we find them in the scriptures cry. They weep. They lament. They lift up something to the effect of, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, longing for the former glory. As I saw that picture of those who stand day and night in front of that wall, praying for a return of the glory of God, the temple, their national identity, and whatever it is they long for, it struck me that the saddest thing of all is that the tears that lament the loss of that physical temple blind their eyes to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You will not find that glory in that mere location anymore. That glory is revealed in Jesus Christ. What do we read after all prophetically from the mouth of Christ our Lord Himself in John chapter 4 verse 21, 25? A question of mountains is raised again when the woman at the well says, should we worship here or should we worship there? And Christ says, there is coming a day when those who worship me, worship me in spirit and in truth. Let us pray that eyes would be opened to see the glory of the Lord in Jesus Christ. Will not be found in anything man-made. It will not be found in reinstituting animal sacrifices. Why? 
because the once for all sacrifice priest, king and lord, intercessor for all eternity has already made the payment and the atonement for our sins and has now entered, as Hebrews says, into the true tent of meeting and is there today ever living to make intercession for us and thus every type and shadow Every symbol that has gone before is gloriously eclipsed in His sovereign work yet this day. These events that are taking place before us in the Gospels picture the significance of these occasions. And they help us to understand the power of Jesus' words. Finally, setting an occasion, a question and answer outline, Q&A outline. The occasion of the disciples' question actually forms the outline of what Jesus goes on to declare. Verse 3, As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, and then there's three aspects to their question, Tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? The disciples want to know when will these things happen, namely, that the stones of the, uh, the temple will be cast down, and moving back a little bit, that the blood, the righteous blood shed on earth, would fall upon this generation. They also want to know what will be the sign of His coming. This coming, indeed, in context, most directly applies to judgment. When will we know that these things are taking place? And consequently, the close of an age. How will we know that a a redemptive, a significant historical milestone has been reached and thus a chapter has closed and a new one opened? I want to just draw your attention to note this fact that Jesus, in this case, does not question the premise or does not challenge the premise of the question. Oftentimes, the disciples came to Jesus with a wrong question. And so he corrects their question before he answers In this case, he does not. In verse 4, in straightforward fashion, the word records, and Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray, and so on. Jesus does not challenge the premise of their question, which leads us to conclude that it was a legitimate question, when will these things happen, what would be the sign of his coming, and the close of the age, and he was going to tell them exactly what these things were. Now, this is to be distinguished from Acts chapter 1, an example of where Jesus does correct the question. In this case, uh, there's a little different context where there's a drastically different context indeed when we find this as we we read, and we find it with respect to Jesus' response. So when they had come together, Acts 1, 6, they, the disciples, asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by His own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So we see by the way Jesus answers these two different questions that there's a distinction between an expectation of a restored kingdom that the disciples had in mind in Acts And the question of what will be the sign of your coming in Matthew 24, 3. And that distinction we will explore in greater depth in coming weeks. But I wanted to introduce introduce that context to you. 
So there, uh, therefore, what can we draw from this? What, are the what must the disciples be referring to if not a restoration of the kingdom of Israel when they ask these questions? Well, surely they're responding to, as I said, Jesus' uh, proclamation of judgment that not a stone will be left upon another on the temple that will not be thrown down. But furthermore, they are responding likely to chapter 23, verse 35, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of innocent Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah. There is a time reference also in this passage where Jesus says in verse 36, Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. So there's a note of imminence. There are certain things that Christ is prophetically declaring that could be expected in the very near future. Now this is reiterated in chapter 24, verse 32, later in Jesus' discourse. He says, From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see all these things, you know that He is near at the very gates. Verse 34, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So there is an expectation of something just on the horizon, right around the corner, that will fall upon this generation in the form of kingdom judgments, the consequences of the woes that are to be expected. That is the setting and occasion. Secondly, this morning, prior warning. As Jesus goes on to answer the disciples' question, the first thing that he does is not tell them exactly uh, the answer to their question, though that comes in due course. But he warns them about their situation, about how they will fare under these conditions. He says in verse 4, Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. There's prior warnings that Jesus gives. Perversion, peril, persecution, and apostasy. The first warning is against perversion. Perversion of the one way, truth, and life. Verse 5, Many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. Under further study on the website this week, I'll include how even in history, at this time, this generation experienced many so-called Christs or Messiah figures that would soon come to pervert, to distract, confuse, to uh, dissuade, to uh, deceive, and to lead people astray. Jesus is anticipating this, and he gives his disciples prior warning. He says, under these conditions, there will be those who will pervert the truth. And because of the intensity of the situation, it is dangerous. You are more likely in some sense, or by some degree, to believe a lie, to believe heresy, and pro false promises, to be deceived, 
when times are difficult and intense, extreme pressure, persecution, and peril than you are under normal, peaceful conditions. So shore yourselves up, church, he says. Now, the most direct application of this is for this time and place. But there is certainly a principle here that extends to our day. We can ask ourselves, do we experience a time as the church of Jesus Christ where pressures are mounting from the outside? Pressures that fall into the category of, category of warfare, uh, pestilence, peril of many different uh, types and shapes where there's famines and earthquakes and so on, cataclysmic circumstances, whole-scale apostasy, a perversion of the truth of God. Well, yes, we see that around us. Well, let us take note by way of application that under these conditions, we must all the more take heed to the word of Christ to see, brothers and sisters, that no one leads us astray. The great testimony of the early church is that even though they were a fledgling band, they were just a few in a pagan culture, and soon warfare would descend with a vengeance on their nation. They would be dispersed to the far corners of the earth. Even under all these circumstances, they remained true and faithful. They proclaimed the gospel. They went forward to the nations. Many churches were started. And like water and oil, the oil itself was dispersed. Even though there was a difference and they repelled one another, ultimately it served to spread God's word and it spread its word in clarity and in truth. The disciples heeded the warning of Christ. They stayed true to his words. They did not listen to the hearsay of those who came after claiming to be a Messiah. Of these, those who would follow Christ, Albert Barnes says the following, quote, So of these Messiahs or of these Christ's figures, he says, not in the name or they follow him or they come in the name saying, I am the Christ, not in the name or by the authority of Jesus, or that is not in the literal name, as if they would announce themselves, I come to you in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, who is recently crucified and then risen from the dead or what have you. That's not exactly the context. Nor by the authority of Jesus, I proclaim to you by the authority, or claiming to be his followers, uh, to be sent by him, but in claiming to be the Messiah themselves. You see, there would be those who would follow Christ And they would answer the cry of the people who are in anguish and stress. They would say something like, we are here to answer society's cries for help. We are here so that the longings of your future will come to pass. They, these uh, false messiahs, these false Christs, they're here to answer society's cries for help yet today. They're here to provide answers for the longings of the future with bright ideas. They're here uh, with their powerful personalities and their promises of salvation, happiness, progress, and hope. This is the perversion of of the truth of God's word that we can expect even in our day. There are millions, there are many messiahs on every street corner, so to speak, who claim to have an answer to society's cry for help that claim to be able, through their bright ideas, to satisfy our longings for the future. They come in the way of political messiahs. They come in the way of technological promises of progress. They come in the way of 
glorious discoveries of new horizons that the scientists can lead us to where we transcend the old order and welcome in the new. They come by way of powerful and persuasive words and personalities, imposing and charismatic figures that convince us that they have it all together and they have a handle on something unique and powerful if we just follow their words, their wisdom, and their ideas their philosophies, their vain ambitions. They come by way of promises of salvation, happiness, progress, and hope. Through uh, foreign aid, we can lift the, the collective economic conditions of the terrorists. And when we do that, they'll be less motivated towards war and peace will break out like a new disease across the globe and usher in an era of peace and joy. Will never happen. There is only one prince of peace. Every other prince is an imposter, be he philosopher, political figure, false prophet, or otherwise. Jesus Christ is prince of peace. And only in the gospel will there be any cries or any answers to the cries of society's need for salvation, for help, for future, for a hope. And so these are the warnings that the disciples needed at this time so that they might stand in the day of adversity. The second category of warning is peril. Notice in verses 6 and 7, you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. Again, the warning is that expect wars, famines, earthquakes, political unrest, Societal upheaval, empires collapsing. We remarked recently in 2 Samuel 24 as David takes his unlawful census. And 1 Chronicles, Chronicles 21 as we read its parallel text. That David was surely afraid of the sword of his enemies. And so therefore he was motivated to count the swords among his people. So thereby saying, confessing in that action that the sword to fear was the enemies around, and the sword to trust was his soldiers within. In First Chronicles 21, the angel of the Lord drew his own sword and slaughtered 70,000 within the nation, proving unequivocally once and for all for those who would uh, be tempted to be led astray in times of extreme peril that the only sword to fear and the only sword to trust is the sword of the Lord. And so... The disciples are called to trust in this day of similar circumstances. He says, Christ declares, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed. Brothers and sisters, in our day today, we hear of wars and rumors of wars, do we not? Oh, the religious zealots, the great terrorist movement, ISIS and Al-Qaeda are going to move across the globe and take us over. They will bomb our cities. They will uh, invade through suicidal means the places of peace, and they will turn them into killing fields. And so we see these wars and rumors of wars all over. We indeed, as far as I know, are in the longest uh, segment in our nation's history of continual war. And I would submit to you in large part because we are alarmed. We react in fear, fear of our enemy's swords, and then we trust our own swords. But we don't fear and trust the sword of the Lord. We must not be led astray by such conditions. Surely the zealots who held up in the temple to resist 
the incoming armies of Titus as A.D. 70 soon approached where many of these things would take place. Surely they felt like they had the moral authority and the high ground and they were highly motivated to wield their swords against the enemy. Did it prove effective? No. Why? Because they did not stand with Christ. They stood by their swords. They had other ideas. They followed false messiahs. They were alarmed. They did not trust in God who vanquishes the foes, who raises up nations, who brings them down, who turns the heart of the king as a stream of water in the palm of his hand, who in his sovereign predestined purpose ordains this nation rise, that nation fall, this kingdom crumble, this kingdom bow. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. This is nothing new. Daniel prophesied it. It took place in history. The fourth kingdom was now going through a state of flux as God was bringing judgment. Be warned under these circumstances, church, of wars, famines, and earthquakes, and great peril, that it pleases the Lord. It pleases the Lord when we stand on Him as our foundation. And if we stand anywhere else, it pleases the Lord to shake that foundation. There is no terra firma. There is no firm ground on which to stand other than Jesus Christ. Not in the national sovereignty of the United States of America, not in the holy claim to the Temple Mount of the Zealots of the first century. There is no firm ground except on Jesus Christ Himself. And it pleases the Lord in times like these to shake the trusted foundations and to bring them down. And He will do it by the sword of invading armies. He will do it by the earthquakes, uh, uh, literal earthquakes, where the ground itself will shake and the feet of all who stand firm and resolved are cast down in a moment. He will do it in, with famine, denying the very necessities of life that we need as His creatures. And He will do it through a pestilence that will come in like a plague and swoop through the land of Israel in three days, slain 70,000. This is the power of our God and it pleases Him to demonstrate it in judgment. May we stand on Christ. And as we do, we will divorce ourselves, separate ourselves, and renounce the uh, strength of, the, of Pax Romana type pieces, uh, types of peace, or, or the promise of zealot hopes of nationalism, or even the temple stones themselves that we hoped would be an eternal relic of our national pride and religious uh, security. And so it is in times of peril, the only place to stand is Christ. But praise the Lord, we do stand. We may die, but as we sung this morning, Christ has defeated death by death because we are one with Him. Finally, under this prior warning, there is an expectation of persecution and apostasy that the disciples are to prepare themselves against. These are those who, after all, are, are called to bear the martyr's witness. When we go back to 23... Uh, verse 34, Jesus said, Therefore I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes, speaking to the Pharisees, some of whom you will kill and crucify, some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town. So who, can, uh, who are the righteous who yet can expect to be killed, crucified, flogged, and persecuted from town to town? If not those, because this is happening in this generation now, if not those to whom Christ declares in verse 24... Then they, in verse 9, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. 
and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will rise, lead many astray, and because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. And so in the context here we see that those who were called to bear the martyr's witness needed to be warned that that's what they were going to endure, but they also had the sufficient word of Christ to stand when they themselves were the object of the animosity of the culture, of the characters around them, the Pharisees, or the people, or the religious and the political leaders and the like. Persecution and apostasy. Jesus addresses this warning to his disciples as they ask him what to expect. And he says, false prophets will come, they will preach lawlessness. Under these conditions, it is likely that the love of some will grow cold. In fact, it will happen. And so he says, stand firm. Notice again, saints, that in times like these, historically, we may well be called to suffer for Christ's name's sake. If you stand with him, and uh, society continues to move as it has in our day and age, you will be called to give an account for your, faith, for your faith in some way, at least to be called a bigot by the new social norms that are sweeping over us like a wave of societal or cultural Western apostasy. But you can stand if you stay and place your feet on the same foundation that was delivered to the disciples at this time. Yes, in this age of lawlessness, the hearts of many, even professed Christians, will grow cold. But if you hang on to the words of Christ, you can stand. This, week, this last week, a news story you might have heard included these interesting details. In New York City today, there's something of a public uh, service uh, you know, via their website that alerts the population of this great American city that any of its residents may identify as one or more of 31 genders or combinations of gender. So there's no longer man and woman by the terms and definitions of this society in New York City, but there's a complete lawless perversion which includes 31 options, as if it were an ice cream bar at Baskin-Robbins. Unbelievable. Now, in the wake of this kind of absolute lawlessness... You as a business owner, it says on that same website, could incur as high as a six-figure fine if you refuse to identify your employee by their chosen pronoun, like it, they, uh, I don't even know. And some of these identities are so, they're such a moving target that many of these people, uh, they don't know themselves what they are at any given day. Why are we slipping into this morass of confusion and this lawless declaration by the authorities of our day throwing off the chains of God's created order and welcoming this confusion and utter, uh, an utter perversion? Well, it's for the same reason that the words of Christ were rejected at this time. And what can we expect under these conditions? Seven woes, if you will, unless we repent. We can also expect that when we take a stand for what God declares, what God says is true, standing on the Sermon on, on the Mount and the great discourses of Christ, that He has made them male and female. In Matthew 18, for instance, therefore what God has or 19, joined together, let no man separate. We can be expected to be abused in some way. But in the, in the context of this lawlessness, though it increases 
and the love of many of our compatriots that we thought were in Christ may grow cold, we can stand if we stand in Christ. Civic virtue has been redefined as renouncing any form of discrimination. And we must recognize people as they now self-identified. Each man is his own little God. We don't worship little gods. We are not gods. We worship the one Savior, the God and Savior, Jesus Christ, and Him alone. And so we must stand in this day. So this is a heavy word indeed. Let me just make one statement in closing, or a couple of phrases in closing to give us encouragement. As Jesus declares these kingdom judgments, they're introduced, as we've taken note, in the context of the setting and occasion. They're also introduced with a prior warning. But they're also promises of kingdom gains. Hang on to these last two verses this morning with all your heart, believers, as we head into similar conditions, perhaps even in our day. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. We have a promise that if we stand with Christ, we will persevere. And as we persevere, we will proclaim. We will announce, and even the occasion of the conflict will spread the testimony of the gospel to the nations. And as the Lord sovereignly proclaims His glory, as the waters cover the sea in the midst of conflict, we can expect that His purposes will come to pass, even as they did in this time. Notice, Purposes in judgment and purposes in gospel proclamation. Two streams running side by side. Yes, the end will come. The culmination of this prophecy, judgment will befall, but it is not one of only hopelessness for the unbelieving, but also of kingdom advancement for those who stand with Him. Though they are martyred in the course of this call, they will yet be a, part, a, a piece that God moves forward to accomplish His great end, And what is that end? Proclaiming the gospel of his kingdom throughout all the world as a testimony for all nations. And I submit to you that this indeed is a pattern in all of history. Though judgment was prophesied all the way back in Genesis 3, the occasion of that conflict would bring a savior who would triumph over death by death. And though that conflict is coming to a head now where the sons of the serpent, as Christ identified them, will crucify the Lord of glory, this is the very moment soon to follow when the very uh, victory and the uh, declaration of triumph over the grave and over Satan himself will be declared by the Lord of glory. And at this time that would then follow where judgment would come upon Jerusalem, the temple would be destroyed, and the whole nation overrun with the armies of the pagan nations There yet was a plan. The gospel would go forward to the nations under these circumstances. And though there remains adversity today, some measure of conflict, yet even now God's word is going forth. And we see it, do we not? It's a pattern in our time. In the most restrictive governments, we find the most organic and enduring growth. Why? Because those in communist China are moved to persevere because they're standing in Christ, not on any shaky, superficial foundation. And they know that according to these verses that the one who endures to the end will be saved and that there is a purpose in their suffering because the gospel of the kingdom is being proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony even to their dark and oppressive nation that light yet shines forth. 
And God has purposes in all of this because he is Lord of history. Let us close in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the declaration and the revelation of your authority in the scriptures. We thank you also for the revelation of your authority, even as we see the evidence of your rule and reign in our day. We see it when we look in our own souls and find, as for those who confess Christ as Lord in this place, that Jesus has conquered our sin. And he has subdued us through repentance and faith in his holy gospel. We also see it in the nations around us where you bring their well-laid plans as judgment on their own head. And you foil them in their efforts to build idols to defame you. And you use those very things as tools to cast down kingdoms, authorities, and empires. And all the while, your gospel is marching forward unimpeded as one after another after another of the harvest of the elect are being reaped through the course of history. Lord, what an amazing privilege to be counted among them. Now I pray that you would turn the harvest here into sickles. And even though we might live in circumstances similar to what the early church incurred, that we would go forth in boldness on Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, bringing the message of the gospel to all the nations. May we do this for your great name and for your glory. And it's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.